Hi, Pastor Adam here, and we are finishing our month talking about relationships, a different kind of relationships, covenantal relationships versus transactional or contractual relationships. Today, in our final week of November, we are just examining what it means when I say we are bound together because of Christ, because we are united under Christ. We are bound together, and that means something for us. That means we cannot dismiss our responsibility toward the fellowship, toward koinonia-type relationships. If all that sounds interesting to you, then this is the sermon for you. All right, so yeah, we're into our final week this morning. I'm into my final week this morning. I'm talking about relationships, as I said. Um, We're talking about covenantal relationships as opposed to transactional relationships or contractual relationships. The world um, wants us to do the latter, wants us to have the latter, wants us to treat relationships contractually through social contract means, um, wants us to treat relationships as disposable, but we know that God sets up something different. And we've been talking about that throughout the course of this month. I hope it's been a good time of you know, learning something new. Um, good discussion, good reflection as we, you know, take it throughout the weeks. Um, so we're going to be into our final week on that this morning. Uh, next month, as we do, we spend time in review of the year, in review of vigilance and solidarity and the different ways that we've been talking about how to accomplish solidarity or unity within the body. So look forward to that. Um, spend a couple weeks doing that. We'll do our Christmas Eve service. We'll do our our entire, you know, body prayer that we do at the end of the end of the year, end of December. So, this is our final sermon relating to solidarity, um, being vig- vigilance in the pursuit of solidarity. So, to briefly rehash where we've come um, this month um, so far, remember we've been talking about that again, that idea of covenantal relationships, and we started the month by talking about the basis for where we find that where we see the setup for a more complete and dynamic and in-depth relationship um, that, God, that God sets the standard for. Throughout history, we see these pillars of uh, Christendom. We see the covenants made with Adam and with Noah and with uh, King David, with Abraham before that, um, all the way paving the way, leading the way to this new covenant we share and we're given with Christ. And that was our first week, is just understanding the foundational setup for that and where we, where we get this idea of covenantal, this different kind of relationship. And it's through God and his standard of interaction with his people that we can, we can learn something from that. The standard for relational commitment that we see through God throughout time and perfected in Jesus. And in the second week, we just took a look at uh, historically significant relationship within Christianity um, when we looked at the relationship between David and Jonathan. One of a covenantal commitment um, that's demonstrated for us through its um, love and even inconvenience. And that was a key, um, I hope, a key takeaway from, from that week was that to be covenantally committed means to inconvenience yourselves and to love each other in a deeper way than any sort of transactional style relationship um, allows for. And 
you know, through this type of love, through this type of inconvenience is where we establish and can uh, expect to achieve any sort of lasting solidarity or unity as a body. And then last week we talked about just the continued contrast, or we continued the conversation rather, on the contrast between contractual and covenant style relationship, contract versus covenant. And a fundamental difference between the two is in asking the question, as I said last week, what can I give of myself versus what can I get for myself? And this is built on the basis of who God is. It's whose image we are created in. To understand covenantal commitment, we need to understand that it's sacrificial in nature. And who better demonstrates this to us than in Christ? The God of the universe didn't have to do what he did. He didn't have to burden himself and give up himself, lower himself in the way that he did and does, but he does it anyway for our good and out of his love for his people. So we talked about that last week, and it was, again, those key questions of what can I get out of relationship versus what can I put into relationship because of who I am, because of who God is and whose image I'm created in. Contract, by comparison, is only interested in protecting and perpetuating and seeking for self. It's, it's inward focused. So going into our final week, I want to uh, just unpack something that I've sort of said a couple times now throughout the month um, and in the previous weeks. And it's this idea that because we are united under Christ, we don't have the luxury of ignoring our relationship toward one another. Because we are united in Christ, we don't have the luxury of ignoring our responsibility, our oaths and commitments to one another. The covenant promise of our salvation through the work of Jesus for all who believe is something that binds us together whether we like it or not. And so what do we do with that? How do we live that? How do we practice that? Whether we prefer one another or not, the scripture says that we are bound together. Whether we think we can gain something through the relationship or not, we are bound together. And so that comes with certain expectations, certain attitudes, a certain heart toward one another. We share an oath toward one another because of this head that we share in Christ, because of what God's word calls us to in light of this. And unlike how the world might go about uh, relationships, we don't have the luxury of refusing, as I said, that responsibility toward one another in fellowship. And if we each recognize Christ as we say we do, as the God of the universe, then we also recognize the body for what and for who it is and our responsibilities with it, within it and our attitude toward it. So let's start to unpack that idea a little bit more this morning. Uh, earlier this month, I highlighted the early church as seen in Acts chapter 2, at the end of Acts chapter 2, and at the end of Acts chapter 4, for that matter. At the end of Acts chapter 2, in verse 42, it says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals and to prayer. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we read that one of the things that they the early church, the first century believers, were devoted to, it says, was fellowship. Fellowship was very important. It was a very important part of their reason for meeting together. It's one of their objectives, if you will. But what is fellowship? 
our modern ideas of fellowship are kind of weak and sort of, you know, don't carry the significance that they did for this first century church, for these new believers, for these first believers, and in the New Testament times. We aren't surprised that the early church devoted itself to things like the apostles' teaching uh, and to prayer. Apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit, these are the two most important means of growth and power and effectiveness in the Christian life, and this is everywhere evident in the rest of Scripture, to be devoted in those ways. But Luke, the author of the book of Acts, tells us that these early Christians devoted themselves to fellowship, as if it's a thing, as if it's a noun. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They didn't just have it. It wasn't passive, but it was something to be committed to actively, to be devoted to. That means that fellowship, relationship with one another, with each believer, was a priority for them. It was an objective for them to be in fellowship, for gathering together. They made fellowship a priority. Even some of us here have a diluted idea of fellowship. You know, we think that it's game nights in the fellowship hall, maybe, or, you know, going out to eat, or any number of activities. That is what fellowship is, is activity-based. But that's hardly how the New Testament writers and the early church believers saw fellowship. That's hardly what was practiced. The kind which we can see produced real fruit and growth, obviously, um, for God's kingdom where there was no absence of solidarity among them, among these first century Christians. In the New Testament, what is shared in common is shared first of all because of a common relationship that they had together in Christ. The Greek word that's used throughout the New Testament scriptures, and it's used in several different ways, you know, the, the, the conjugation of it. The Greek word koinonia was an important word for these New Testament writers as they're speaking to the church and as they're recording, as they are recording the history of the church. Um, it's an important word that John and Paul used, but it wasn't used, koinonia wasn't used in any sort of secular or sort of um, diluted sense that we understand it today, that we might think about relationships today. It always had koinonia, this, this kind of relationship because of being bound together by Christ, always had spiritual significance to it. Spiritually significant, a spiritually significant base. The idea of an earthly fellowship founded upon just how we see relationships today, common interests, uh, self-advancement, social contract, human nature, physical ties like family, or just because of church affiliation or something, this was foreign to them. This wasn't how they viewed and treated relationship, fellowship with one another. The New Testament believers can have fellowship and had fellowship and shared together, as it says in these chapters of Acts, because first of all, they had a relationship with Christ, and they shared him in common. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says to this church in Corinth that he's invited you into partnership with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, we proclaim to you, we ourselves have actually seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. 
Fellowship is the sharing together in this, this common life uh, with other believers through relationship, first and foremost, with God. Fellowship didn't start out somewhere else, and then God was found along the way. It was built on the back of God. That's how they viewed relationship with one another back then. It's first and foremost a relationship rather than an activity, which again is how many of us might think of fellowship today. Oh yeah, it was great to spend time in fellowship, and we're referring to the activity that we did, but we're not thinking about the relationship as the primary thing that we're talking about. We're referring to something subjective, if you will, rather than objective. I'll touch base on that in just a second. The principle is that any activity that follows should come out of, first and foremost, the relationship that is found because of our common head in Christ. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the early church wasn't merely devoting itself to activities, but to their, their actual relationships with one another. And it was these relationships that produced an active, produced an active sharing, as it says in that verse. Remember, they gave up everything. They shared all that they had. They lived freely with one another and giving up and sharing of what they have because of their relationship together. It's important that we grasp this. It might seem simple, but it's foundational to our understanding of how we move together um, with one another and how we treat one another and how we think about one another. We don't do things out of um, or because of activities. We don't gather together because of an activity. We gather together because of who we are connected to Christ. But there's a negative aspect as well. Because of our relationship with Christ, there can be no legitimate fellowship with the world or anything that is contrary to Christ and our relationship with him. What that means is, because of our relationship to Christ, by not understanding and living in relationship together and understanding fellowship as the scriptures highlight it, um, then are we, really, are we really honoring our relationship with God? See, we can't, we can't live like the world would ha- have us live in our relationships, treating each other contractually, only thinking of each other based on you know, how it helps us. It can't be that, that first question of what can I get out of this? That's not how we honor God. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18 says, Don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? What union can there be between God's temple and idols? We are the temple of the living God. Verse 17, therefore come out from among unbelievers, separate yourselves from them, it says. Don't touch their filthy things and I will welcome you. I will be your father, you will be my sons and daughters. The way that we relationship has to be different than the world wants us to be in relationship. Koinonia and its different conjugations also is used to describe the sharing together in the sense of partnership. So to fellowship and to be in relationship one another is to understand our partnership with one another. It's used in a secular sense to describe the example of the relationship between people like Peter 
and James and John as fishermen together in Luke chapter 5. It's there. It's used um, secularly, if you will, to describe their trade in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus first calls them into discipleship, when he calls them to be fishers of men. But more significantly, that word in the New Testament scriptures, koinonia, is used, and it, it's used in, as it pertains to spiritual matters. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23, in the first chapter of Philemon, nobody gets it. There is no first chapter of Philemon. It's Philemon. There is only one chapter. Philippians chapter 1, verse 5, I was seeing if you guys are still with me, refers to Titus and Philemon, these different places in Scripture, 2 Corinthians 8, 23, the book of Philemon. Philippians chapter 1, verse 5, refers to Titus and Philemon and to the whole church in Philippi, for that matter, as partners in the ministry of the gospel and as co-workers who shared in the ministry. He says similarly in Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, of himself and of Barnabas, that they were given by James and Peter and John the right hand of fellowship, and they were accepted as partners and co-workers for their ministry to the Gentiles. Whereas the word relationship describes believers, us as a community, partnership describes us as principles of an enterprise, if you will. A business partnership is always formed in order to attain, attain an objective, such as providing some sort of service or whatever, or profit to its partners. But framed through our understanding of covenantal relationships, the concept of spiritual partnership implies that it is created with the objective of glorifying God. We partner together to do this to glorify God, to bring others to him. Just as believers are all united in a community relationship, we're also united together in a partnership formed to do just this, to accomplish this objective, to live in a way together that glorifies God, to show other people that kind of glory and relationship. Biblical fellowship, biblical relationship with one another then incorporates the idea of an active partnership in promotion of the gospel to and the building up of believers. So partnership is a distinction that we have as we are in relationship to one another and there's an objective built around it that's not something that is self-based, you know, it's not a self-objective. It's not how can I how can I be in relationship with this person to get what I want out of it or whatever? How can we be mutually um, civil with one another so that we both achieve our own personal ends? The relationship that we share together is built around the objective that we share in glorifying God. Relationship describes what we are, a community of people bound together under Christ our common life and blessings that we share together through that relationship. But partnership describes how we're related to each other in that relationship. We are partners in an enterprise and calling in which we are to work together toward that, toward our common purpose 
to obtain common objectives for the glory of God and spreading of the gospel. We're partners toward that end. Period. That's it. That's why we, that's why we are together. To work toward that mission. Again, this is in contrast to relationships that are used as a means just to propel and to perpetuate, a lot of P words, propel, perpetuate, promote, self. Philippians chapter 1 verse 27 27 says, Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then, whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, one objective, if you will, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Partnership. Further understanding of our importance, of our relational care for one another on a deeper level than, level than just transaction or contract means understanding each other as a companion Within our worldview and within the context of who God is, that means communicating on a spiritual level through a sharing of the things of Christ, the Word, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the ministries and gifts that each of us have, that we, each have. we think about them in terms of subjective experience. There's some sort of blizzard happening on this screen over here. <clears throat> I've had a pretty good relationship because of this this experience, this activity, this feeling I had. Usually it's performance-driven. They did good for me, or they helped me achieve this thing, so I, I equate that to a good relationship. It's a performance-driven type of understanding. That's how the world sees it. My relationship is good because of this performance. But the most basic meaning of relationship deals with objective fact. It refers to the condition or fact of being related to someone as a son to a father or a wife to a husband. And it's particularly true of relationships as we should be viewing them as a body of believers. Relationships refer to that objective fact that I will be your God and you will be my people. It means we're related to God as his children born into his family through the Spirit and the work of Christ. We're related to Christ and to each other in that we have been joined into union with him. We are members of his body through the baptizing work of the Spirit. Fellowship means we share this relationship and it is an objective fact. And so how do we move forward with that understanding? It means we keep in mind that our experience with God and with one another grows out of the objective fact of our relationship with God. It's not based on the experience itself. It's based on the objective fact that we are related to one another because we are related under God. We're adopted by him. And that's been consistent from me to you throughout this month. The verbiage Paul consistently uses in the opening verses, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2, speaks about us who have life with Christ, or when Christ rose, rather. Us along with Christ. We who are united with Christ. 
time and time again, us and we and along and united with and bound with Christ. And it's through the understanding that our relationship together is based on the objective fact that we are related. And how to fellowship together through then subjective experience, how that rather influences our subjective experience. In the Bible, fellowship embraces both the objective and the experiential aspects. But for the experiential, the subjective to occur, we first have to know that we come from an objective, factual place, that we are together in Christ. It forms the foundation for all other aspects of our fellowship, our subjective experience. It provides the motivation, the means, the confidence, everything we need to appropriate our new life as those who are related to his living son. It's because we are related to Christ that we are partners and related to each other. The first century church understood this because they were related as a household of God's people and they were able to share and give in this way. Their objective understanding gave way or enabled their subjective experience. Their objective understanding of who they were and their relationship with one another influenced their subjective experience together. And our perspective and our understanding and our attitude toward one another needs to be similar. It's a truth that we, we have to hold on to and like let, let into our hearts like on a deep level. Galatians chapter 6.10 says, Whenever we have the opportunity, we do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. I mentioned earlier that Paul and John never used the term fellowship. They never used that koinonia word in purely a secular sense. It always had a spiritual base and a spiritual means. The idea of earthly fellowship founded upon social contract or simply common interests or common likes or dislikes or similar personalities or human opinions or physical ties like in family. It was a foreign idea to them. It was a foreign idea in connection with how they understood relationship, fellowship. For these guys, Christian relationship was tied directly into spiritual realities. Certain things must be involved or we don't have koinonia. The first essential is the foundation, the objective aspect, but it includes the means of fellowship, the subjective aspect. And those means include being led by the Spirit. All aspects of fellowship are dependent upon the ministry of the Spirit. And the work of the Spirit before we are saved and the conviction of our hearts toward truth and after we are saved as our, incurred, as our paraclete it means being led by God's word. Central to these believers' fellowship was the teaching of the apostles, being devoted to our relationship and partnership and companionship and stewardship depends on our devotion to scripture. Then coming of, or the coming of the Son, rather, and the proclamation of God's word 
was not an end in itself, but it was a purpose of fellowship. It comes, fellowship in itself comes from a true proclamation of God's word. It means being in a prioritized relationship, in an obedient and submissive relationship with God, first and foremost, before we can come together in koinonia. That might seem like a given, but you'd be surprised. We can't properly koinonia if we're not first and foremost in an obedient and submissive and prioritized relationship with God ourselves. If we're to share experientially the subjective aspect in the life of Christ, we are to share together as partners and as companions in an effective and meaningful way. If we're to share in this way, certain things are a must. Without God's means of fellowship, being led by the Spirit, being led by his word, being in an obedient and submissive relationship to him, we don't properly honor what it means to be covenantally geared toward one another, bound together toward one another. What we end up with is simply social interchange or perhaps a, um, perhaps a compatibility to our old sinful nature. We can't go at it alone. We're not meant to. We see that from the beginning in the garden, in chapter 2 of Genesis. Adam wasn't meant to go at it alone. God recognized this, so he gave him someone. We are relationally made. It's how God sees us. We aren't to go at it alone. It's God's declaration. God is a God of relationship. And we receive that gift of relationship when other people declare the same allegiance as we do. We're given that. We come together. We recognize that. It's a gift of solidarity when we accept Christ in our lives. It's a gift of receiving one another and being in this different kind of relationship with one another that we don't have to do it alone. We're not meant to. But growing up, We've been influenced negatively by the world when it comes to this, you know, and this country in particular, individualism is a virtue. Relationships, they don't mean what they used to. They're disposable. Just a stepping stone for gratification of myself. And we often allow tradition or personal aspirations, expedience, or personal preference and other defining features of transactional relationships to define or to eclipse the authority of God. We allow the viewpoint of our culture to invade and take control of our lives and our actions and our relationships. But the scripture is clear that biblical understanding of what it means to be a body in true koinonia, in true fellowship, relationships with one another, when we understand this, we become better as people. Solomon understood this when he says that two are better than one. And the Proverbs tells us that as iron sharpens iron, 
one man sharpens another. And 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 18, and Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, Paul tells us that understanding how the body should function in its many parts necessitates a different kind of relationship. And he says again in Romans chapter 1, verse 12, that it's our mutual faith that enables our mutual encouragement to live and to grow strong together in God. Relationships in the body of Christ are not some side issue. And they're not fellowship as maybe some of us have come to understand it in modern day. Excuse me. Is one of the four things that Luke, in the book of Acts, said that the first century church devoted themselves to. To fellowship. Again, like it's a thing. A living thing. A noun. They devoted themselves. They saw it as a pillar of their growth. And of a way to glorify God. They devoted themselves to fellowship. Koinonia. And throughout this month... My hope is that we've gained a better understanding as to why. In order to move past the cultural influence of vapid, selfish, ultimately transactional relationship, we need to be committed to the kind of fellowship relationship that encourages and edifies and serves as sacrificial in nature one another. We need to be committed unselfishly to each other, not to ourselves, to each other whose Abba we share. Our relationships here in the church are not based on coincidence, convenience, proximity, whatever. Our relationships are based on the objective fact of who we are, who God declares us to be. Through his economy. And that comes with a responsibility for each of us, toward each of us. A responsibility that treats, treats each other different than the world wants us to treat each other. Solidarity is, solidarity is not something that happens passively. It's something you have to be devoted to, actively committed to. Solidarity doesn't happen just because we all came together today on Sunday. The beauty and the blessings that we can take from this Acts chapter 2 example is that the scripture says that because of how they lived, because of their devotion not just to the apostles' sound teaching, to the communion, and to prayer, but to each other, it says that their fellowship grew. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Because of how they were living, they were that testimony that we're trying to be ourselves, that testimony to who Christ is. Because of their devotion to God and one another, they attracted more and more to this way of living, this new way of fellowship, relationship. And they were made better, more righteous, and more holy in the process. My questions for you guys today, one final time, are these. How are you actively devoted 
to fellowship with one another? Do you let your relationships here passively happen, or is there more intent when you come together? How are you actively devoted, just like that first century church was? Secondly, how can your relationships within the body better reflect a partnership in the way that you live for God together? How can your relationships better reflect this idea of partnership together? In what ways are you working with one another in the ways that scripture calls us to? We have an objective together, and do we treat one another as if we have an objective together? And then lastly, how are your relationships treated by the objective fact that we are bound together because of God's declaration to us? How are your relationships treated knowing about this objective fact because of who we are? Our oath to Christ means that we have an oath to one another. How do you live in this truth? Does your experience with one another honor the objective truth of your connection, or is it just built on subjective experience? 